advocacy, you know, is also we have to raise awareness, number one, so people understand and know that it's an issue because if you haven't experienced it person, you don't know about it. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Now here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today I'm joined by a very good friend, Dr. Serena Chen. Dr. Chen graduated from Brown University in Rhode Island. She went to Duke for medical school. She caught her first baby there and decided to become an OBGYN. She then did her OBGYN residency at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in Maryland. And she has come on to become the director of the division of REI and OBGYN at St. Barnabas Medical Center, also known as the Institute for Reproductive Medicine and Science. She's also a clinical associate professor at Rutgers and at their Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and at St. George's University School of Medicine. She's been named top doctor a whole bunch of times. She is all over Twitter and is easily the quickest to respond to any (laughs) message I feel. Dr. Chen, Serena, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Hi, Griff. It's so nice to be here. I'm really excited to have you because we're both sort of hitting a stride with messaging, with connecting with people, with sharing thoughts with the community. And I feel like we're going to go down some good rabbit holes today. Okay, that sounds good. I want to start with a quote that you had sent me. And if I remember correctly, I don't even think that I paraphrased this before I put it into a blog. I feel like you sent me this all in a text message. So listening audience, I'm going to read it to you. Not to use social media platforms is to be culturally incompetent. As a physician, we are supposed to give medical advice in a language the patient understands. Not doing so is considered to be medically inappropriate and can lead to adverse outcomes. If large segments of the population get the majority of their information digitally, isn't it incumbent upon healthcare providers to provide information in an accessible, understandable way? Dr. Srinaj Chen, circa 2018. For those of you that don't have the privilege of having long text message conversations with Serena, this is the type of nuggets that you get, what you're missing out on. Let's talk about that because that's a really inner, that's a really coherent thought, a pretty solid affirmation. And I want to have you explain more of it. It's not that I composed it like spent a long time composing it. I did, I, we were talking and I just blurted out in the text, but I have been thinking about it for a long time because I, you know, I started, I think I started maybe like seven years ago or six, six years ago. I can't even remember when I first got on social media, but before I got on social media, I thought about it a lot because you could see like when, when did social media become big? It's been over a decade that, you know, people have been communicating via social media. And so I was interested in a long t- for in it for a long time because it seemed like there was a lot of excitement about it. And I thought initially I thought, well, this would be a good way, you know, for practice marketing. Like we should, you know, these are 
would be a good way to market our practice. And, you know, because reproductive medicine in particular, there, there does seem to be, I feel like a lot of patient engagement, maybe because patients aren't critically ill. They're very, very passionate about having a baby and getting good care. And in the New York metro area, and New Jersey, where you know we are, there's there's a lot of choices. So people and New Yorkers and New Jerseyans are kind of famous for seeking a lot of opinions, second opinions. And so for people who are not critically ill, who have an issue they're very passionate about in this area, they they've always done a lot of shopping. And so, you know, in the old days, like in the 90s, I feel like we did a lot of stuff online. Like we had chat IVF chat rooms. We answered questions online. A lot of doctors in other fields didn't do that. So I feel like reproductive medicine people. Do you feel that were a lot of IVF doctors doing that? Because it seems to me like there's a a lot of folks who want to stay clear, the heck clear of it now, much more in the 90s. So I think that there are a few people who were active online and participated on the Resolve Answer Board and American Fertility Association and reproductive medicine. And I and you're right, it wasn't all of reproductive medicine, but there were definitely a few people who are active. I did a lot of that and I enjoyed it. And I think it helped patients. And I didn't see that in other fields. So when social media started coming out, it seemed a lot more interactive than the message boards. And so I was very, very interested in it initially for marketing. And, and then I, when I started doing it, I think we, you know, we got a lot of positive response and I, and I met like a lot of interesting people, not just, I didn't get just positive feedback from patients saying, Oh, I saw your post on, you know, Twitter or Facebook. And that made me feel comfortable coming in to see you. But I also met people like you, Griff, like uh, people who are also interested in things that I was interested in. And we didn't just meet online. Then we we got to meet in person. And, and that was really cool. Like social media for me was really, truly social. And but now we realize that uh, an entire generations of people now use this for communication more than they use their phones or email or texting. They, you know, this is, this is how they communicate. And we were always taught as physicians, you know, I have to take courses every year. I have to do CME credit. Like it's part of licensing and things like that to be what's called culturally competent. You know, you cannot speak in English to somebody who only speaks in Spanish and tell them the risks and the benefits of their treatment or surgery and then really truly have informed consent. You cannot tell somebody how to take their medicine that way. Then if they take it wrong, you know, people can even die from taking their medication wrong. So cultural competence in medicine is really important. And it it just means talking to the patient communicating to the patient in a way they can really understand the the risks and the benefits of their treatment and they can be compliant with what they are supposed to do with their treatment and their medication. And a lot of physicians are very dismissive of social media because they see it as marketing. They see it as beneath them. They see it as, I don't know, just... I think both of those are ancillary excuses. I think the real obstacle is that it's one more damn thing 
that they don't feel like learning and they don't feel like mastering, spending the money, time, effort into. And I think it's really important to note that, you, you know, you seemingly jumped in to social media, but really you were just adapting from a long time ago when you were, you were in chat rooms in the 90s. And there were people in the 90s that said, these things will never take off. Or why the heck would I talk to a, a patient in a right. chat room? Or what about risks A through Z? And they used all of those as reasons to not start engaging with that platform. You were. And then when that platform left the desktop world and left the chat room and it, and it went from being anonymous to people's actual names and it was social media profiles and that became mobile instead of desktop, you were just going along with it because you were, it, it wasn't like you're, you're jumping in, learning a brand new language. You're just sort of staying with the language as it's adapting a, a little bit more closely. But I really think it's, it's like Griffin or Serena or all of the other people that we have on this show. You want me to do one more damn thing. I'm already swamped. I'm already seeing so many patients we're already busy. Isn't that good enough? It is hard because as physicians, we constantly have to learn new things. But that's kind of like saying, well, you know, why do I have to do PGT with NGS with next generation sequencing when I uh, when I just learned how to do it with fish fluorescent in situ hybridization? Why am I using ultrasound to guide my transfers when you know, when like that's yet another thing for me to do. Why do I have to use electronic medical records when, you know, like it's basically saying uh, like I still think it's part of technology. It's not something that we use directly to treat patients, but it's communication is absolutely critical. And I guess that's my point is that digital media is literally a type of language for an entire generation. So somebody, you know, this is how they communicate. We have data, like, and I, I presented an, an abstract a couple of years ago at ASRM called The Doctor Will Tweet You Now. And we have data from ZocDoc, which they very nicely shared with us, showing that a lot, a lot of appointments are made after hours, because that's when people have time to make appointments like this is just the reality of our lives now. And if we create barriers through, you know, language or, you know, you have you're taking care of patients who are in their 20s and 30s and they they never you know, talk to people on the phone and they don't feel comfortable. They don't have you know, they don't have time between nine and five in order to call you and to be able to make an appointment, how are they going to get care? Those are, you know, barriers to care. And to me, all those barriers seem like a lot of procrastination because at the end of the day, I think people know what's coming in, what's already here. And for some reason, if they can just push it off in their minds, if they can just deny it, then they, they feel like they can buy some more time or they don't have to make certain decisions now. Because you know, I, I remember in 2015, the first meeting I ever went to in the field, I wrote an, I, well, for, I wrote an article that said, Instagram is where your patients are. You have to be on Instagram. It is the place for people. I got you on Instagram. 
It is the place where people are spending their time in the infertility community. I went to a meeting and somebody was speaking on social media that wasn't me. And that this person saying, yeah, those are the places you don't need to be on Instagram. And I, you know, I think I blew a gasket. And that's when I started talking to people and, and, and the, the blog started growing. And, but, you know, and now it's like, finally, we're seeing like everybody on Instagram. Instagram still is the place. But guess what? It was way more valuable four years ago because not everybody else was on there. And, uh, and there might be something like, new like next week. And how long do we have to wait? <laughs> but right. Like, but and medical, there will be something there right? will be there both will be something new next week. And but still people will people have said to me for years, Griffin, what's the next thing? Like, don't worry about what the next thing is. The next thing is now. Just start doing Facebook and Instagram now so that you can learn the same way that you learned from being on chat rooms in the 90s. Right. Right. And, you know, I like you made me start doing stories and Instagram live. So I did my like until today is only my second day. And you can see like it was totally not slick at all because I didn't know how to turn off the live video. And now I don't know exactly what to do with this video, where to put it, but you're right. You just baby steps. And that's how I did it. I'm not a techie. So I basically just was like, okay, let me just start by opening the account. You just do one thing at a time. And then, you know, as a busy physician, you have to install an EMR. You don't do it by yourself. You have people to help you, people with expertise. You pay somebody who has expertise to make it easier for you. But you should that like, just because you don't know how to do it or you're not really, really interested in it. But if you're, if that's where your patients are and that's where they get their information and they understand and engage with their treatment better, you know, an engaged patient is a patient who's more compliant and a, a patient who understands what's going on is going to, they are going to do better. That's very old fashioned data. Like this is not social media data. This is just about basic communication. That's why we have this idea of cultural competence is that you have to connect with people where they are. So they understand, you know, the meaning of their treatment. Like it, you, you know, you have to understand that a lot of Asian patients are suspicious of Western medicine. So you have to try to communicate with them in a way that they, you know, like when they have diabetes, just just tell just talking to them in in a way that they don't understand is is not going to help them with their diabetes. So it's not the particular media. It's just saying there's this is how people communicate. This is how they connect. This is how they absorb information. This is how they learn. We medical information is hugely important, obviously, to health and wellness. And as physicians, as caretakers as providers, we have to provide information in a way that patients can absorb it. And if you don't know how to do it, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to personally learn it. We, we could have somebody like you help us with it. You know, like that's, I personally, I just like it because it's just fun for me. And, you know, I'll tell you that I always tell people, I said, if somebody put a gun to my head, I said, you have to text one of your friends and they have to respond to you within 30 seconds. And if not, boom goes Griffin. <laughs> I'm texting Serena Chen. <laughs> you are so quick to respond. 
I, I mean, it's just, I mean, you're seeing, you're in and out, you're seeing, and I think a lot of people don't have the bandwidth for that. To be fair, I don't have the bandwidth for at that. Right. Speed. And you have to, you're right. You have to know yourself, but you, but to just put your head in the sand and say that this is not a valid form of communication and we're not using all the tools and technology available to us to help us take care of our patients. I don't think that's right either. So wait, this is by no means saying everybody should be, you know, doing Instagram live videos every day. Like, obviously that's, that's just not something that everybody wants to do, but there's a lot of great people out there that can help you with this stuff and can help you, take your information and and connect with patients and say, Hey, these are, you know, these are things you should be thinking about or things you should be aware of. Like we have this, you know, I, I just, we just signed up with this great company engaged MD and they didn't pay me for this, but you know, they, they, it's a whole company where they do all Taylor and Jeff, if you're listening, you got to sponsor the show <laughs> right now. That's going to cost you all this guys. great video content. And they know how to take the platform. You don't have to know anything about making videos at all. And they send it to your patients and DocuSign and they can make you cool and savvy and electronic. And you, you, you know, you just got to give them, you know, a check and they take care of that technology. And so there's a lot of cool stuff out there that, you know, you can be plugged in and high tech without personally having to do it. Because there is physician burnout. Physicians feel like, you know, we have we have too much stuff to do. Like there's we have to document, we have to bill, we have to do this, we have to do that. And on top of that, do all the busy work of, you know, taking care of our patients every day. So it can be. You know, what my hypothesis is, Serena, I want you to either confirm or reject or add to this. My hypothesis is that as a rule, doctors hate anything less than aesthetically perfect. And the trajectory of becoming a subspecialist is very much at odds with the trajectory of startup entrepreneurship, of tech entrepreneurship, of social media, which you don't just, because in in REI or any other subspecialty of medicine, you don't just start a new procedure without clinical trials, without research, without... A number of processes. And in social media, in content marketing, in the tech space, we do something first and then we iterate and then we do it again and we iterate and we do it again and we iterate. And those two behaviors are very much at odds. I had one client, God love him. He's a Canadian client. I won't say his name. Let's call him Dave for, for this. Dave was so freaking conservative. I could not get Dave to, to, po- to, you know, to post anything on social media. We just ended up posting like social media cards and eventually just said, Hey, you don't need me for this. And even if we just put up a video of them walking, of you know, his nurse just walking through the lab that somebody is going to watch for 1.7 seconds in their newsfeed, he, he doesn't want to put it up because he only wants his name and brand associated with the absolute highest level of aesthetic perfection. Yeah, I guess that's part that is part of our training that, you know, mistakes, imperfections are not tolerated. And you're right, marketing is very different from that. And you know, and then there's, you know, medical liability. So people are are trained in that way and but at the same time that 
creates barriers between us and our patients. Like if you're absolutely perfect and rigid and about everything and, and you're dealing with a patient who's really emotionally very, very stressed, if she doesn't feel like some sort of connection with you, it makes communication harder. And, you know, and then, and then the, the intimidation factor and all of those kinds of things, everybody's different. So I can't say that this, this works for everybody, but I, I guess I feel like when I can make a, a little bit, you know, of a personal connection with my patient that, they, the communication is better. And then I hear about stuff like, oh, I, I wasn't so happy about that, that, or that made me really comfortable. That's why I didn't take that pill the way you told me to. And now I'm telling you about it. And maybe if I didn't feel comfortable with you, I wouldn't tell you. And then you wouldn't know why, like your treatment wasn't working or why you had this problem when, when I thought like everything was going fine. And those, and we all know that those things can make a huge difference. And so personally, I, I feel that social media makes you less intimidating, breaks down barriers. It, it makes patients feel like, oh, she seems okay. She's not that scary. I saw her on Instagram and she flubbed up her video. So she's not that intimidating. I can, I can tell her that I made a mistake also. And, you know, and I can talk about that with her because, and then we can solve the problem together. So I, I feel like. 100%. What? We had a hundred percent. We had Dr. Natalie Crawford on this show a couple I months totally ago. I totally agree with what she said. Yes. Well, yeah. Her point was we have patients coming in. We're asking them to give so much personal and sensitive information. Sometimes that is really painful and they know nothing about us. How, how is that supposed to work? And you know what? She is one of the most influential fertility doctors in America. Period. Because she struck I, a I'm chord. going on the record. Absolutely. And what she's, she's been out of fellowship for what? Three years right. because she built this herself. It's organic. She, yes. Like she just, entirely. people were just like, Oh my God, this doctor is talking to me. And telling me a little bit about her life. And she seems like a real person. And, you know, so and and then she's putting out educational content. OK, this is what to expect for this. You know, this is egg retrieval. Also trying to empower female physicians. So she's really I think that's solid data. Look how many like what is she up to now? Tens of thousands of followers, like 40,000 followers or something. She didn't pay for those followers. People are just like, oh, my God. This is what we want in a doctor. She's still respected. She's board certified. She makes, you know, she's making babies with IVF and, and all of that is, you know, and yet she still talks about, you know, her misgivings and anxieties and, and, and things like that in a very human way. And I think the old school, and I'm much older than Natalie and, and was trained in a very kind of patriarchal, hierarchical way is that you do have to, you have to, the doctor has to be perfect. And if there's any chinks in the armor, then it somehow undermines our authority. And I haven't really found that to be the case. I found that when you connect with a patient and you, you do give a little bit of personal information and some of it is, and it's not all perfect, 
that you actually end up in a more collaborative team effort in the patient's care. And I, and, and I really feel like outcomes are better that way, that patients will, will be more open and honest and, and, and compliant with you because they just feel like they, they can be, that they can, that you're a resource for them. Well, let's talk about that collaboration because really social media marketing, this, that's just, that's, those are just drops in the bucket of this entire dynamic shift that we're going through in society and with human communication and human behavior. And I tell people marketing is really just the gateway drug that I get people in to start participating because yes, if if you do this, well, you will get new patients. You can also use it to solve several other problems and adopt different software and, and how it all ties into the tech revolution at large is just a really small piece. Collaboration is a much bigger piece that you talk about a lot. One of the things that you really want to do with the the content that you're creating is you want to break down some of these barriers that exist between different specialties, between different specialists, between different geographic areas. Just talk a, a bit about like the barriers that are existing right now and so i think one really, why you one want really good example to be more this collaborative and personally is oncofertility or fertility preservation for cancer patients okay vitrification is a is a newer way to freeze eggs and embryos and we used to struggle with freezing eggs and embryos for a while until you know in the 90s and in the 2000s vitrification came into play and we realized vitrification as as a freezing technology was like pressing the pause button. And so we suddenly had this situation where egg survival and pregnancy rates after freezing eggs was like almost as good as like fresh eggs. And so ASRM and ASCO, American Society for Clinical Oncology and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine in 2013 and 2012 said, we should be talking with all cancer patients that are reproductive age about the availability of egg freezing so they can decide, do they want to freeze their eggs before their cancer treatment? And, and everybody said, oh, yeah, that's a no brainer because, you know, like young people that have cancer are surviving better and better. There's millions and millions more and more and more growing every day of cancer survivors in the United States and throughout the world because we're so much better at cancer survival now. A lot of people do get cancer at a young age and haven't started or finished their families. And when you ask cancer patients what's their number one priority after surviving, it is having a family. So having a family after cancer is is a huge priority for cancer patients, a huge part of their quality of life. And we are concerned about quality of life now because we're doing so well with survival. So 2013, dial it up now. I think less than 50% of people that are have a cancer diagnosis in the United States and are reproductive age and would like to have a family after they survive and have a good chance of survival, are not even getting any information at all from their doctors about freezing eggs and don't really have an easy path to to be able to freeze their eggs. And and really the way it should happen, it should just be part of the whole thing. Okay, you need to get a mammogram. You need to talk to the plastic surgeon because after your mastectomy, you're going to you're going to think about whether or not to do reconstruction. And, you know, and here's here's the reproductive endocrinologist. Read about the egg freezing. You know, we'll get them on the phone or we'll send you to the office if if you want to stop by and hear about freezing eggs. You don't have to do any of these things, but everybody gets that information. And in fact, I, my office at St. Barnabas Hospital is two floors above 
the oncology center, phenomenal oncology center, phenomenal oncologist, but so hard that silo, that barrier was very high to, to get through the logistics of being able to easily get those patients the information they need. I'm glad you brought that up, that you're in the same office as them, because a lot of people are listening and they're thinking, yeah, well, I'm in an independent practice and our office is a little bit further away in the, the big hospital system or the, you know, the, the big oncology hospital, the cancer center is 20 miles away on the other side of town. So I don't really have a relationship with those groups, but it's not geographic. It's not geographic at all. And 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 now we're finally because the oncologists, they're all like, oh, wait a second. What are those hormones? What's that egg retrieval? Like they don't have training in this area. Nobody has training in this area except the like the people who are sucking the eggs. And I don't know anything about oncology. I know, oh, cancer is bad and you have to take chemo and radiation. I don't know anything about what they do. They open their mouths. They speak English. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're doing. And I'm a physician and I'm a good one. And same way with them. And we're running around like a nut job trying to, you know, I'm trying to make babies. They're trying to save lives. We're working really, really hard. How do we make this workflow work? There's these huge systematic barriers and that exists in every single aspect of medicine. And so like we need to talk more with each other. Social media perhaps is a tool, except a lot of doctors don't like using social media. So we have these barriers between us. I finally, the amazing oncologists in the Barnabas Healthcare System there, it's RWJ Barnabas Healthcare System now, phenomenal cancer care. And now like I just basically every time I see an oncologist or even I meet anybody, I'm like, here, you know, here's my cell phone. You have a cancer patient. Just text me. I'll just, I'll talk with them on the phone right away. Even if, you know, they can come in right away. We'll get them a doctor or I'll just talk with them on the phone. And if they don't want to freeze, that's fine. But just, you know, just say something to them. And they, and after all these conversations and talking and talking and talking and doing talks and, you know, and them really, learning and me really learning about them and their process, you know, now we have, we have more process. We still have a long way to go though. It's still not so easy and so automatic, even though technically this is like standard of care now. And that's just one small example in our field of, you know, how silos can have a huge impact on outcomes and patient care. And we have those in every single, you know, field of medicine. And there's so many cool things going on. Like what about genetics? What about data science? What about artificial intelligence? What about um, social media as a communication tool and all the things that we do? How, how can we break down barriers and, and use all these tools together to do a better job and make people healthier and improve wellness and cure disease. You know, I, I see where these threads link together, social media to be able to distribute ideas more clearly to the public to also break down the barriers and silos that exist between healthcare providers as a means of making healthcare more accessible. How does this all then tie into advocacy? So advocacy is also hugely about communication. I think that people, you know, they don't realize how difficult it is for people to access reproductive medicine treatment and advice in the United States. And it's, you know, because if you if you haven't gone through it, you know, you don't you don't realize that a lot of the stuff helping people have get pregnant when they when they can't get pregnant, it is very, very difficult, extremely stressful, not covered. There's just 
not enough accessible services out there. And advocacy, you know, is also we have to raise awareness, number one, so people understand that uh, and know that it's an issue because if you haven't experienced it personally, you don't you don't know about it. And obviously getting our voices out there and reaching the public and reaching the legislators and and getting patients and doctors together, hugely important to break down barriers. Because normally I don't know anything about the legislative process. I don't know how those things work. And being and you and I actually that's when we first met was at Advocacy Day. And that was such a great experience and so nice to, you know, know you on Twitter and then like meet the real live Griffin Jones with all your hair in person. <laughs> that was that was amazing. And then to work together, we have very different, you know, we have very different tools and backgrounds and skills and experience. And yet here we were working together and hopefully helping patients, you know, access access care and ultimately, you know, have a family because of better insurance coverage and more awareness about, you know, that kind of care that's needed. And I also feel like this kind of addresses that other thing about bandwidth and provider burnout is there's actually strong data and evidence. And there was actually like a, an article in New England Journal of Medicine, maybe an op-ed piece saying that, you know, physicians to get physicians, if they get more involved in advocacy, even though it's yet another thing to do, it actually can decrease burnout because a huge part of burnout is the fact that we're swamped with all this stuff that seems meaningless and doesn't seem to help patients. And here we are, our whole lives, we've been striving to help patients and we feel like the system is in our way. And if you do things like advocacy and meet people like Griff and the people at Resolve who actually know how the legislative process works and they do all this work for you and say, hey, Dr. Chen, we've done all the research, but we but we just need you to, to talk to this senator or this representative and just explain IVF and what you do. So you still in your comfort zone, but because we're collaborating together, we're accomplishing these things that you on your own would never be able to accomplish. So you're kind of, you know, you're communicating, you're advocating and, and you're doing something for yourself too. I really feel like this is something that gives my job a lot more purpose and meaning. You know, you meet a legislator and you see from their perspective, like what they see, what they want for their constituents and they hear about what you do every day and you think it's routine and it, it may be a little bit boring because you're doing it all the time and you see how inspired they are and how excited they are about what you do. It really, it, it it's really very gratifying and I think makes makes me enjoy my daily grind more and gives me more purpose and meeting. And, you know, I think that helps, you know, with that whole burnout thing. Too. This service to the community is is it's like insurance for long term cultural relevance. In that <laughs> when you serve the community, you get so much back. And here we have of people that are really suffering that don't know much about their problem. They get really lousy advice from friends and family that hear dumb stuff like just stop worrying about it and yeah. you'll get pregnant. They have no idea how much IVF costs. They don't know. Should I, should I, I was talking with someone who, you know, they, they bought a less expensive form of progesterone and, and had a bad reaction to it and blamed themselves for that. Like there's so much stuff that these folks are suffering with that they're asking for a leader. And by definition, a reproductive endocrinologist 
is a leader. And the only missing piece is stepping up to the point and saying, I'm here to serve this community, to listen, and then to give my thoughts and connect with you and and take you as much as can. And you really are very good at that, at, at somebody that really is into the the community. So in concluding, what haven't I asked you about breaking down barriers, about building a more collaborative healthcare system, about changing the delivery of medicine to what you want to see it in the mid 21st century? Okay, so what I, thoughts I guess- would you want to conclude with? I guess one of the big things is that the, I think it's important for patients. I want, you know, I, I feel like this whole, com- a lot of this is about communication and reaching out and connecting. And I think that not only addresses patient care, so patients should reach out and connect with their doctors and communicate and don't be afraid to speak up. There really is no question that is stupid. And if you're made to feel stupid, you, you know, you, you probably have to go, you know, find another doctor, but you know, even intimidating doctors, you reach out to them and and communicate. I think you'll be surprised that they will respond to that. So very important for patients, a huge part of your care and your outcome is you participating in your own care, participating in your own life and communicating that you're going to get better care that way. And like listening to podcasts and doing some reading, but not going totally crazy can be helpful. And then from physicians, I really feel like physicians need to not feel so intimidated by all this new digital technology. It's here. This is how people communicate, you know, like hire somebody to help you. Like I, like I took Twitter lessons. Like I had some lady who came to my house and like for a hundred bucks, she spent a few minutes and was like, okay. I love that. Like, awesome. I'm like, I need a Twitter lesson. You know, she's like, okay, this is what you do. Let's say, you know, like from really basic, there's tons of people out there who do it. Like probably if you paid your college neighbor or your high school student who lives next door, they, you know, give them a Yeah, few- don't call Fertility Bridge for that. Sometimes you have clients that want to <laughs> show me how to... <laughs> Uh, yeah, or, or you can get much more professional advice from Fertility Bridge. But yeah, you know, there's lots <laughs> of resources. Tell me when you want to grow your egg freezing program. Have the have the college neighbors show you what Instagram stories. <laughs> but you know, it, like it doesn't have to. You know, even if you use a nice professional firm like Fertility Bridge, it doesn't it doesn't have to cost a gazillion dollars. And and I think we we have data to show that the return on investment is huge because. If you're more out there and you're more connected and, you know, patients are going to be just feel better about you. You're going to get your name out there and you don't personally have to do this social media all by yourself. Uh, But I think if you stick your neck out there and do a little bit more connection, it's also nice professional, you know, interprofessional connecting. And I, I feel like we need to lift, get our heads up from the grindstone out of the computer every once in a while and take a, take a few minutes to do that because to remind ourselves, like, why, why did we go to medical school in the first place? Why do we spend all those hours and, you know, and time and money, you know, we're, we're here to help patients and we have to take care of ourselves too. And so, you know, feeling good about what you're doing, I think connecting more with patients and professionals for me, at least and, and doing advocacy has been hugely helpful in lowering my burnout 
because I, you know, I, I do, I, I run around like crazy and sometimes I'm pulling my hair out and uh, nobody's immune from that. And you, and we need to take care of ourselves and think about solutions to that. So we can continue to take care of our patients. Like, you know, oxygen mask on first and then help the other person. Dr. Serena Chen, thank you so much for coming on to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Griff. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you have a strong opinion about today's episode, we want to hear it. Agree, disagree, or have another point to add, please email podcast at fertilitybridge.com and tell us if you recommend a guest or a topic for a future episode. If you're ready to skyrocket your fertility practices growth and double your IVF cycles, schedule your fertility marketing discovery call by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you just want to learn more tactics to market your fertility center, download our free ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing on fertilitybridge.com, also available in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast, and we look forward to talking more fertility shop on future episodes.